zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to a very special vintage video Patreon pick, where our patrons at the $100 tier are invited to request any pre-1980s title they'd like for a custom review from the vintage video team, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today, Carlos Moda has asked us to review Sands of Iwo Jima, released March 1st, 1950. It was written by Harry Brown and James Edward Grant, based on a story by Harry Brown, directed by Alan Dwan, and released by Republic Pictures. Star John Wayne initially turned down the part since he thought 42 was old to play a sergeant, and he presumed American audiences were tiring of war films. Director Dwan moved on to considering Kirk Douglas for the part, but stopped when he learned that Wayne could still be persuaded to play the part after all. With money? <laughs> exactly. That's all it needed. He was like, no, 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 I'm too old for that. And it's like, oh, well, then we'll talk to this. Like, Hold on now. We can still discuss this. This is still a conversation. Are they very different in age? I kind of imagined the two of them to be fairly similarly aged. No, I think they're pretty close. Yeah. yeah. Wayne would go on to receive his first Oscar nomination for the part. The film was also recognized with nominations for Best Writing, Editing, and Sound Recording, but won nothing. Wayne made it known that while he appreciated the nomination, he thought it should have been for his part in She Wore a Yellow Ribbon the same year. Wayne wouldn't take home the Oscar for another 20 years, for the role of Rooster Cogburn in True Grit. This film shot on location mostly in California, very near where we record this podcast, including sequences on Leo Carrillo State Beach and right over the hill in Jan's Conejo Ranch and Thousand Oaks, as well as my workplace, the Universal lot. Many of the battle sequences featured actual war footage from the battles being portrayed at Tarawa and Iwo Jima, and the cast of extras included as many as 2,000 actual Marines. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, I realized as I was watching, because there's a distinct, like, you know, uh, difference in the quality of footage. So right, as yeah. I'm watching it and we keep flipping back and forth between the different, you know, footages, I'm like, oh, this has to be actual yep. war footage. But I didn't realize that they actually then cast a bunch of Marines, uh, for Marines the part, in, yeah. the, in the real it, it gets crazier than that even, but we'll discuss well, that. Well, I want to know where they, because there's obviously like real ships and stuff in here. Like where'd they yeah. get all this machinery? I mean, the Marine Corps cooperated a lot with the making of this film. A sequel entitled Devil Birds was planned, but later scrapped that would, spoiler alert, have somehow still involved John Wayne's Sergeant Stryker character? Huh? That doesn't sound like a sequel to me. Yeah, uh, unless it was, uh, he didn't die. Right, yeah. <laughs> The <laughs> they leave they they bury him and he just comes crawling out of the grave i'm not dead <laughs> it's a different genre oh my gosh. it's a zombie movie i'm a devil bird <laughs> that's why it's called that the film's success also earned wayne the honor of having his footprints and fist print added to the cement of grauman's chinese theater and sand from the actual beach of iwo jima was mixed into the concrete to commemorate the film that's I mean, it seems a little weird, doesn't it? Yeah, because he didn't fight there. Yeah, he wasn't yeah. actually in this battle. He just played a guy who he was there. He was just celebrating, you know, the people who were. And he played right. a guy who was there but was actually not filmed there. Right. <laughs> Here in Southern California, an hour's drive from his house. For money. <laughs> <laughs> right. Why was it a fist? Because he punches people. Yeah. Like, okay. <laughs> yeah, he, he's, he's... That's his thing? I mean, 
I, I feel like I guess like the, the Quiet Man would have been later, right? Sure, yeah. Like that that movie's all about punching, right? I want to compare my fist to John Wayne's fist. I guess. Is yeah. That, I mean, because you stand, that's... you stand on like Judy Garland's footprints, and she's got these tiny little feet. Or maybe he literally couldn't <laughs> not make a fist, and they were like, "Can you just open this for?" <laughs> nope, doesn't right? open. Like, I just punch things. <laughs> I punch too much. I punch because I love. This is my punching hand. This is my cigarette hand. <laughs> well, we can't put the cigarette in the cement. Television broadcasts of the film are heavily edited to remove all the slurs for Japanese people. But not the not the real-life war footage of a body that's on fire. Yeah, no, leave that in. Sands of Iwo Jima also happens to be the favorite film of Cotton Hill, father of King of the Hills, Hank Hill. He killed 50 men. <laughs> but I watched an episode yesterday where he talks about being buried in bodies at Iwo Jima. <laughs> oh, Cotton Hill's wonderful. I think that's one of the Toby Huss voices on the show. The strongest man in the world. The film starts with a chorus of men's voices singing the Marines hymn. At the start, after the opening credits, the film is dedicated to the United States Marine Corps, whose exploits and valor have left a lasting impression on the world and in the hearts of their countrymen. Appreciated and gratefully acknowledged for their assistance and participation which made this picture possible. The story starts with narration from Corporal Robert Dunn, a member of the Marine Rifle Squad whose story is being told. The men are sent from Guadalcanal to Camp Paikakariki in New Zealand. Wait, oh, sorry, hold on. Is this Dunn's story? Well, Dunn is one of the men in yeah. the group, and he also presumably survives to tell yeah. the story. It does seem like there's other people that you could have had telling the story, right, but we right. care too much about whether they survive it. Replacement troops are arriving at the camp, and Bob Dunn shakes hands with Private First Class Benny Ragazzi. Ragazzi turns to introduce his friends, Handsome Dan Shipley, and brothers Eddie and Frank Flynn, and Irishman George Helenopoulos. Ragazzi seems to be a talent agent of some sort back home, and expects to make his friend Shipley a movie star if they survive the war. The Flynn brothers get in an instant argument and start punching the crap out of each other. Later, the men all gather to meet their new sergeant, just as John M. Stryker, as played by John Wayne, enters the tent. Where is he? Where's the sergeant? He's here. Some of them seem to know him already. He warns them that everything they've been through has been easy compared to what's coming. After he leaves, one of the men, Al Thomas, expresses his disappointment at having been assigned to Stryker yet again. He blames Stryker for having blocked several promotions for him in the past, even turned him in for something, and also points out that he was a sergeant major in the past and must have screwed something up to get busted down to three stripes. Well, what'd he turn you in for? Oh, for... That's not important. What's important is the fact that he turned me in. Everyone but Thomas jumps in to defend Stryker's reputation and point out that Thomas is probably still mad that he lost a fight with the sergeant in the past. Ragazzi is the only guy on Thomas's side because he thinks he can represent Thomas as a fighter when they're back stateside. We get a training montage and it ends with Stryker talking to Private First Class Peter Conway, whose father, Sam Conway, was Stryker's commanding officer when he died. The best officers and finest men I ever served under. I thought if you... Thanks, I'll keep it in mind. Obviously, Conway doesn't care much about Stryker's connection with his father, and as the men begin marching away, Conway confesses to a fellow soldier that he only enlisted out of obligation and his father was always embarrassed of him. In another training scene, a soldier named Choinsky seems to be fairly clumsy and constantly trips over himself. Later, Stryker challenges Choinsky to a bayonet duel and quickly knocks the man unconscious with the butt of his rifle. He orders the rest of his men to go through the course again. 
The next day, Ragazzi is eyeballing all his shirtless fellow soldiers, imagining the fortune he'll make selling them to Hollywood. For some reason, mispronouncing physiques as physics. Mm-hmm! Will we take Hollywood with them physics? I think this was the closest you could have at the time to a gay stereotype, so the men dump a helmet full of water over his head to cool him off. Stryker receives word that he's gotten no mail again from his son. Later we see Eddie Flynn being consoled by the men because his liberty has been cancelled since he isn't making enough progress according to Stryker. Conway says the penalty is overkill, but Stryker shows up to remind them that this isn't a game and they'll be shooting at people someday and they won't appreciate him being lenient with them now. Eddie's brother Frank stays behind with him as a show of solidarity and somehow even that kicks off a fight between the constantly quarreling brothers. We dissolve to a dance in nearby Wellington and the soldiers are all dancing with the local women. Conway is coaxed onto the dance floor by a big-eyed beauty named Allison Bromley, played by Adele Mara. It's love at first sight, and he stays glued to her for the rest of the dance. One of his men commandeers the band and kicks the music into high gear, so Conway and Allison head out for a walk and kiss each other on a bench overlooking the ocean. Afterward, she walks with him to the train. A pack of his men encounter Stryker drunkenly stumbling down the street, and nearly leave him to fend for himself when they notice some MPs approaching and decide to carry him away to keep him from getting in trouble. As they complain about having to help him, another of his men, who is more fond of the sergeant, offers to take him off their hands. I'm not sure which one because nobody says his name and all active Marines look the exact same. Uh, I imagine it must have been Dunn because Dunn- I think it was Dunn, yeah. Dunn was the only one who like has like casual conversations with Stryker throughout yeah. the movie. Um, yeah, it's important, it's important to note that the MPs were- were Navy, right? Not Marines, and that's why that's more why they because didn't they, want him. they're like on different teams, and he yeah. would have been in a lot of trouble. Even though the Marines are a branch of the Navy, right? But I have this problem with this entire movie of there is being able to tell people a apart. lot of people. It's in black and white, and they're all dressed the same all the time, right? And so I have this terrible like I'm like I don't know unless somebody's literally saying their names, I can't tell the difference. And to be honest, we only do a little bit of like character development with like right. a couple of them you know little tidbits about you know with the male or with the you know with the girl and you know but mostly we don't know who most of these guys are usually you solve this problem in a war movie by people having their actual names written on them well there's i think they're sprayed on the backs on the of, backs of but them. their backs are so rarely pointed at camera yes. that it's really hard to pick the people yeah. apart so through most of this movie i don't know who is who yeah no i definitely had that problem on going through it like pass after pass trying to figure out who is this person i'd never see his name nobody ever says it but the, but the other problem that i have generally with the movie is that it also doesn't really matter right yeah is you know it's like we just don't there's two there's two people in the entire movie there's people who like him and there's people who don't like him right that's yeah. it yeah and all the people who like him are the exact same person and all the people who don't like him are the exact same person yeah but like honestly in any of these scenes you could have exchanged any one of these people for almost any other one of them aside from striker right and it probably wouldn't have made any difference to yep. the movie whatsoever correct that night conway tells dunn he believes he'll marry allison he wonders why soldiers get married but then answers his own question by pointing out that a marriage or a child is a way to live beyond the war if they don't make it home the next day, Stryker warns him against getting married. Conway tells Stryker that he can order him around on a battlefield, but he won't follow anything he says outside of orders. Stryker says he heard that from Conway's father already. Conway sees Allison again and proposes right away, and she accepts. Back in the camp, we hear the Mexican hat dance playing on a record, and Stryker spots Choinsky and challenges him to another duel. 
Instead of fighting this time, they dance to the record. No idea why, it clearly doesn't correlate to the motions of a bayonet duel, and presumably Stryker just wants to see this man killed in battle. Amusingly, Hal Baylor, playing Choinsky here, was an active Marine combat veteran in various World War II battles, whereas Wayne never served anywhere except on camera. But he's showing like he's the expert. We cut right to the aftermath of Conway's wedding. They'll have just under two days together to make a honeymoon with. Later, we're on a ship to their first battlefield on the island of Tarawa. The brothers get in another argument, and Choinsky tries to break it up, but accidentally knocks them both out by conking their heads together. I don't know if that was an accident. He seems, like, apologetic after he does it. Mm. He's like, oh, uh, and then he calls for the corpsman to, like, come and check them out, because... Well, you probably don't want to injure anybody before you actually get to battle. Right. You yeah. kind of need all these guys. And Choinsky's been built up as a guy who screws things up constantly. The men are given a quick overview of the island on approach and reminded that patriotism isn't all about sacrifice. Let the other guy die for his country. You live for yours. A paraphrasing of a General Patton quote from just before D-Day. Afterward, the men are shipped out on the way to Japan. The men hope that the naval bombardment will take care of the Japanese forces so they don't have to, but Stryker's experience says that there will still be plenty of work to do. Taro was pretty crazy. Like, I mean, it... They just leveled everything on that on that island. Trees, everything was everything was down. Yeah, they were just pounding it for hours and hours and hours before they made landfall. The Navy and the Fly Fly Boys unloaded plenty of that stuff on the canal before we went in, too. But when we got ashore, there were still a lot of those little lemon-colored characters waiting for us. Presumably that's one of the lines that gets cut from the television yeah. podcast. I mean, is he talking about the candy lemon heads? Right, exactly. <laughs> that's what he means. Those characters on the side of the lemon yeah. heads? All those boxes will be destroyed by this Navy bombardment. Conway is annoyed by the warning and throws a punch at Stryker, who catches it and spins the man around before the fight is interrupted by an announcement. It's time to disembark, and they roll up on shore under heavy fire. All right, get out now. We're crossing the line of departure. Lock and load. Supposedly, this is the first recorded use of the phrase lock and load, meaning to get ready for battle. I love these landing craft too. They're yeah, like, that they're like kind of tanks on the beach. Yeah, they're like they're amphibious craft. Uh, you know, so the, they're boats in the water, but the the tank treads are always like kind of rolling yeah. while they're in the water. So when it makes like landfall, they can just ride up onto the beach. It does seem like they could have gone farther on these things, but they only get about thirty feet out of the water. On yeah, them. they lose a bunch of men right away, but Stryker suggests they hang tight in a safe space on the beach until they get more orders. They're pinned down under bunker fire with explosions all around, and they call in an airstrike for the coordinates of the bunker and send a couple men with flamethrowers to torch the place in the meantime. One of them makes it to the bunker, but several other men are cut down on the way. Men try to carry explosives up to the bunker and keep getting killed on the way so that the next guy rushes out to carry the explosives a few more feet and then gets shot. We saw a similar situation in the Big Red One as the men try to assemble the Bangalore mine. When John Wayne steps out, he survives long enough to toss the bombs into the window of the bunker and take out the enemy guns. Someone dies here, not sure who. The soldiers are all interchangeable except, like I said, some of them like Stryker, some of them don't like Stryker. Uh, are you talking about the guys who were waiting for the guy to come back with ammo? No, no, no. No, no. not yet. That's okay, much okay, later. Yeah. So the guys trying to bomb the bunker. Three men jump into a circle of sandbags together and realize they're out of ammo. One of them, Thomas, offers to head back for more but gets distracted by a freshly brewed pot of coffee and stops to enjoy it before returning to his friends with the ammo. His friends back at the hole get nervous and move to a different pit where they are quickly stabbed by Japanese soldiers with bayonets. When Thomas returns to them, they ask what took so long with their last ounces of strength. 
High Command, Order Striker, and another squad to dig in and hold their positions until more Marines can be moved in. In the middle of the night, the men can hear someone calling for Striker, and Conway demands he go and rescue the person. Striker refuses to leave his position and threatens to kill Conway if he tries to. They hold their position through the night and return to the beach in the morning when the new troops arrive. They reboard the ship after successfully taking the island and head to a camp in Hawaii. Stryker reports to his men that Thomas's friends both died in the fight, and Thomas looks really guilty about it, but stops short of confessing to trading their lives for Starbucks. One of the men, who Thomas abandoned in the bunker, apparently survived being bayoneted, yeah. and reports to Stryker what happened. Stryker confronts Thomas and just starts punching the shit out of him before explaining anything. The fight is broken up by some nearby officers who demand an explanation threatening to court-martial Stryker, but Thomas says the sergeant was training him in hand-to-hand -hand combat and later admits privately that the guilt of what he's done has kept him up nights. Stryker accepts the man's excuse and advises him to learn from this mistake. Conway gets a letter from Allison and learns that he's a father, or he will be soon, probably. Probably not quite yet. No, I, th I think that... Yeah, I think it's born. It's literally... Is it, is it already born? It's a boy. So this is nine months after the wedding yeah, already? it is. So, I mean, that's that's what the letter says. It's like, I... I Had a baby, it's a boy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but she's just like, it's probably surprising to me to tell you now. Yeah. And I probably should have told you sooner. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that commercial. <laughs> it reminded me of Mitch. You have a collect call from, at a baby, it's a boy. <laughs> I just remember Mitch Hedberg. It's like, what kind of cigars do you like? Uh, it's the boys. <laughs> Again, Stryker gets no mail and prepares for another difficult night on leave, but he is approached by a woman at a Honolulu bar. He's very short with her, and she tries to leave before he apologizes. He ends up going home with the woman, and when she steps out to buy them some alcohol with his cash, Stryker finds that he's been left at home alone with her son in a crib. <laughs> That's kind of messed up. But it's also kind of messed up because she was already out at the bar before she brought him there. Yeah. So the kid yeah. was sleeping home alone. But he had a rattle crib. tied up on a string above his crib. Yeah, yeah strings above fine. cribs are totally a safe That's, way to leave yeah, babies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> she comes back with the liquor and Stryker tears open the bag to reveal that she's also bought some formula with his money. When he learns her husband is no longer in the picture, he forgives her scheme, understanding that people's lives are hard. Well, I guess into each life a little rain must fall quoting Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. He surprises her with his knowledge of babies and tosses more cash into the crib before leaving, and the woman thanks him for his kindness. He knows that babies love playing with cash. Yeah, <laughs> they love money clips. Because <laughs> there's nothing there's nothing cleaner than a couple money. Of, couple of bills that have been around the uh, the base a few times. Yeah, I, I do like how surprised she is that he's competent with the child enough to be like, I'll frisbee money in your face because she's like, oh, you know babies. Like, I can't believe you even heard of babies. <laughs> it's like, yes, I know babies. I used to be one. Stryker heads back to the bar where he speaks with Conway and admits that he named his own son Sam after Conway's father. Conway says he'll keep his children as far away from the military as he can. The next day, during a grenade exercise, a man accidentally tosses an ordinance at Conway's feet and he's so distracted with a letter from his wife that Stryker has to tackle him away from the blast. On the ship to Iwo Jima later, Conway confesses he doesn't expect to survive this mission. The ships bombard the island from the sea again, and loads of planes take their turn clearing the island as best they can. Some of Stryker's men on approach notice words written on the back wall of the boat they're riding. It's too late to worry now. Hey driver, you the joker that wrote that? That's Semper Fi, Mac. We should take you in along with us. Private McHugh is headed into battle with pockets full of books for some reason. 
The boats make landing and continue up the beach on tank treads for a few hundred feet. Well, I thought for sure that the bullets were going to... Get like, stuck in these like, books? Like he was going to survive. Oh, look at the bullet got stuck in the book. Unfortunately, they're all abridged, so... <laughs> abridged too far. Why, what? Did I, why did I bring the Cliff Notes version? <laughs> <laughs> these aren't going to stop any bullets. One of the men complains that the dirt of the island is crappy dirt, and why would anyone fight over a trash island like this? That's war, boy. What's war? Trading real estate for men. The men advance up the beach, taking considerable losses, including McHugh, who was rolled over to reveal the book in his front pocket, Our Hearts Were Young and Gay. This novel, written by actress Cornelia Otis Skinner and journalist Emily Kimbrough, was adapted five years earlier into a film starring James Brown, not that James Brown, who portrays Private First Class Charlie Bass in this film. More and more men are dumped on shore. One of the Flynn's is shot and his brother heads back for him. A Japanese soldier tries to take the Flynn brother out, but Conway intercepts him with a shovel and slices the man to death, and then beyond death. Yeah. Like, too much, until Stryker has to come and pull him away. There's a pillbox over the hill and machine gun fire blasting out of it. Ragazzi promises to find a bazooka to take it out, but instead he returns with a tank. A flamethrower tank. Yeah, it's Those pretty awesome. are crazy. Yeah. The tank blasts the pillbox with a massive flame. I couldn't find a bazooka. You did all right. All right, saddle up. The narration comes back to tell us that after three days, they had barely made any progress. Stryker and Conway finally take a moment to bury the hatchet and take turns on watch before a strike on the mountain of Sarabachi in the morning. The next day, Stryker and his men are approaching the peak of the mountain and losing a man a minute. Stryker is handed an enormous flag with orders to erect it when they reach the top of the hill. He passes the flag to the men intended to raise it and offers celebratory cigarettes to his fellow men when he is struck fatally by enemy fire. I feel like at this point they've are they already feel like they've won because yeah. they're already like put the flag up and I'm like, yeah. have you won? You're still people are still dying and getting shot. shot. I mean, you can't take everybody out before you I, put the flag up. I guess you got to get that flag up while it's daylight. His men take out the enemy soldier, verify his death and then find a letter to his son and tastelessly read it out loud to each other. Dear son, I guess none of my letters have reached you, but I thought I'd better try again, because I have the feeling that this may be the last time I can write you. Conway offers to finish the letter for him, and we cut to a recreation of Joe Rosenthal's famous photograph of the flag being raised by a squad of soldiers over the battlefield of Iwo Jima. Some of the men seen raising the flag here, specifically Rene Gagnon, Ira Hayes, and John Bradley, were the surviving flag raisers from the real-life battle. Oh, really? Insanely, the flag used for this scene is reportedly the actual flag from the photograph loaned to the production by the U.S. Marine Corps Museum in Quantico, Virginia. What? Oh, jeez. Why? Why would you give them Why? this flag to use? Oh, my God. This is like as bad as them using the, the original armor for all those Japanese soldiers in... Yeah. Uh, uh, Kaji Mushi. Kaji. Mushi. Kaji Mushi. Yeah. Yeah. Don't let Kurt Russell near that that prop. Yeah. <laughs> Kurt Russell, poor guy. That's not his fault. That's Quentin's fault. I think Quentin did that on purpose. Wait, what did he do? Uh, Quentin let Kurt Russell destroy a priceless guitar on the set of Hateful Eight. Oh no. Yeah. The Marine hymn comes back, and Conway takes on Stryker's role, calling the men back into action, and the end fades in over the fog of war. Uh, I really like how they combined the war footage of the location that they're at with recreations of the battles of yeah. the location that they're at. 
Um, not to mention just stuff going on in the background. There's, There's a lot of people stuff. in every shot. There's also shots that didn't look like um, actual war footage where they're shooting stuff. Like they're right. actually like launching stuff off of ships or, mm-hmm. you know, exploding things off of tanks and stuff. I'm like, that looks like actual footage that you actually used munitions for. Right. And and some of these flamethrower tanks were on set. Like yeah. that's yeah. that's actually firing Crazy. like a gasoline propelled jet at something. Yeah. So, like, I appreciate a lot of things about this movie, but as a movie... <laughs> yeah. In terms so, of the story, there's not a lot here. Well, there is no... There is no... First of all, you don't really know any of these characters much at all, except Stryker, uh, Conway, and I guess Dunn a little bit. I, I don't know. Like, I feel like it's just a Stryker-Conway story. Yeah. Really. Mostly. And there's no character arc for, like, anyone. Yeah. Like, I kind of expected it to be, like, the realization of oh striker really did teach us things that we ended up using on the battlefield and thank god that we had him and we you know and they all come around and they celebrate him which is there just kind of a little bit but the rest are dead but they're mostly dead which i guess is you know realistic to what actually happened but there's the whole thing just feels like I don't, I don't know a nice way to put this. Like, it's just... It feels overly patriotic. Yes. It, it feels it like feels a nice like, little pat on the back. Good job, USA. We yeah. killed a bunch of Japanese people. Yeah. I, it, like, do, it does feel like it's it's mostly a hoorah for the Marines. Which and, I get. In the time period, that's what people wanted out of a film like this. Right. So that's fine. I just, like, I as a movie that's, like, standalone, if you had no context of the actual battle itself or the war in general or the meaning of this battle in the war right. like i don't i don't know that yeah we don't a, we're not given a greater context of it's of not Iwo it's Jima's not a great importance. movie as a movie if you don't have any context of anything outside of this movie right and i also feel like the resolution between striker and conway doesn't have enough of a catalyst for them to suddenly be like you know what never mind i like you cuz you're going to die in the next scene yeah. Like there there's not there's not a clear moment where it's like, "Oh, I didn't realize this about my own father and now I realize this about you and that you're so great and that maybe my father didn't hate me so much." Like we never have that conversation where he finds out that his father was proud of him or something like that. It's just kind of we don't hate each other anymore now all of a sudden. Yeah. And then that's the end. I mean, I think that they they had the idea to be able to use this footage and create a memoriam sure. to the battle. Yeah. And that was all they needed. They didn't really feel the need to have any amazing character story, you know, driving the film. Well, I, what I don't get is I don't understand why the movie didn't take place entirely at the Battle of Iwo Jima. I mean, we, we're just coming off Guadalcanal. We go to Tarawa um, and we have a lot of like training. Yeah. But it, it seems to me that the Iwo Jima portion of this movie is like maybe. 10 minutes 15 minutes i think because they wanted to portray these people from enlistment all the way through to this battle and so many of these men were already hardened from tarawa yeah that you know they they wouldn't just be like fresh off the boat in in the region but yeah i i do feel like they spent enough time in Iwo Jima to do the full movie there. Yeah. And I mean, they've done movies that take place entirely over the course right, of the Right, of battles. course. They've done two, in fact, yeah. in parallel. Um, yeah, I feel like, obviously, modern modern movies and, and, and certainly modern war movies, 
there, there's and even even less modern movies. There's usually an overarching plot, right. like uh, like Telemark, the the Telemark, you know, uh, Heroes of Telemark. Like we have a squad. Here's the goal. Will they succeed? Right. You know, obviously Private Ryan, um, but even like Guns of Navarone, which is a fictional story, but you know, it's just like okay, but squad goal mission. Will they succeed? Yeah. This is, is, there's never a goal. The goal is just to survive. Yeah. Um, And uh, I don't feel that that's enough for me is is like, like, because I don't know when the movie's going to end. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, like, yeah. On a long enough timeline, none of these guys are going to survive. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like with, with all the other movies that, that that I mentioned, when they're getting close to the goal, I know it, and it's getting more and more exciting. Right. Is this is, like they're on Iwo Jima, but is, is it going to go after Iwo Jima? Like, yeah. Like, what's the next island? Yeah. Tarawa uh, wasn't the end. Uh. So that that to me has a pacing issue. Yeah. But technically, the movie was very well made. Like the the. The stuff going on in the background, the visual effects, some of the, some of the the like the bullet impacts, like when they're just doing these really wide shots, are they just, just get like, a dot on the forehead. Well, no, they're they have like um, I mean, in the dirt, oh, they just yeah. have like, oh yeah, they're everywhere. Yeah, they just they're have just pew, 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 yeah, pew. they have like these air like must have like air hoses and stuff under like yeah. puffing out puffs because like they're always in the same spot. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> um, but just to have all that stuff constantly going off was really impressive. Yeah, absolutely. What are we thinking thumbs wise? This is thumbs up. I think it's probably a thumbs down for me. Yeah, I'm 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 torn on it because I'm like I do appreciate things about this movie, like you're saying, on a technical level, the cutting in of footage, the lengths that they must have gone to to make this movie. But it's just as a movie, I don't think it's very good. Yeah, and I I, I also not that I think he should have gotten it for she wore a yellow ribbon, but I don't think that the Oscar nomination for Wayne was warranted here. I, I do like the Rooster Cogburn more, but I like Jeff Bridges' Rooster Cogburn more than John Wayne's Rooster yeah. Cogburn. Yeah, yeah, uh, I'll give it a thumbs up. Okay, uh, I, I had not seen it, and I enjoyed I enjoyed watching it. Um, uh, but uh, it's probably not a movie I would probably if I were to watch this movie again, it would probably be with my dad. Yeah, yeah of course. Like, my da- <laughs> my, like if my dad was like, he was like, oh, I'm gonna watch Sam with Iwo Jima, I'm like, oh, I'll watch it with you. Yeah. You know, the, that that's the only real circumstance yeah. that I can see myself because that's where I watch most of my old war movies. Unless someone pays us to review it again. For- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I am going to give it a thumbs down because I always say I don't like war movies. And then we keep coming up against these war movies where I'm like, oh, I really like, you know, The Big Wed Run. I, I liked it, you know, and I keep coming up against these war movies that I like. This is the kind of war movie that I don't like. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so unfortunately, I, it's a thumbs down. All right. Our director here was Alan Dwan. His directing credits go all the way back to 1911, mostly shorts until the 20s. The writer and story came from Harry Brown. Uh, He also wrote the novel adapted into A Walk in the Sun, the screenplay for the original Ocean's Eleven, and, of course, a story credit on the remake of Ocean's Eleven, not of this. Oh, okay. (laughs) I was going to, what? Other writer credit was for James Edward Grant, who also wrote John Wayne Vehicles' The Alamo, The Comancheros, and Angel and the Badman. Do you guys recall the last time we mentioned the John Wayne film, The Alamo? Not in a credits section, but within the context of the film. I don't. Fort Apache, the Bronx? You guys don't remember The Alamo? No. I don't. I remember The Alamo. The bartender in American Werewolf in London says that she remembers The Alamo because she saw it in Leicester Square. And she's talking about the John Wayne film. Oh, uh, okay. 
Fair enough. I saw it once in London, in Leicester Square. She means in the cinema, that film with John Wayne. The music here came from Victor Young, who also scored A Place in the Sun, The Quiet Man, and Around the World in 80 Days, for which he was awarded an Oscar posthumously. Cinematographer Reggie Laning. Later, he lit Abbott and Costello meet the Keystone Cops. <laughs> this is before that. And a sizable chunk, 56 episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. The editor here was Richard L. Van Enger, who has lots of television editing on shows like Lassie, My Three Sons, Bonanza, and his last credits were for cutting 13 episodes of the late 70s Wonder Woman series. John Wayne played Sergeant John M. Stryker. We've seen Wayne at least twice now on the podcast that I can recall, but never as a character in the movies we've covered. Can you recall either of the appearances that I can? Wait, say, say yeah, that say again. All that again. <laughs> We've seen John Wayne a couple times at least okay. on the show, but never as a character in the film, as himself in other films. So John Wayne was in the movie. Like on the TV? In archival footage, on a television okay. or, or okay. on a film screen. Um, Was it in that one that did all the montages of the times between the sections of their meeting at the hotel? I don't think so. Okay. I checked some same time next year. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And yeah. I did not see any notes about John Wayne in that film. Okay. Let's see. Other places we've used. One of them okay. was kind of a special episode, if that helps. Special episode. And that was a clip from True Grit when he says, fill your hands, you son of a. I don't remember that. How many special episodes have we had that were not movie reviews? We've only done movie reviews. False. <laughs> you don't remember any other kinds of episodes we've done other than movie reviews? Uh, we did an Oscars episode. There you go. The Oscars episode. That's oh, the one. Okay. Where he was in one of the Oscar montages as the True Grit character. And then we've also seen him in a movie called The Flying Tigers in another movie. Flying Tigers. He was a pilot. I got nothing. Raggedy Man. Uh, Very recently, he took the kids to see the new John Wayne movie. Remember? Bye, kids. Oh, okay. And they see a pilot get shot in the face, and the kids freak out about it. He was also Ringo Kid in Stagecoach, Captain Kirby York in Fort Apache, Captain Nathan Brittles in She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, Lieutenant York in Rio Grande, and he's also in Hondo, The Searchers, Rio Bravo, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, True Grit as Rooster Cogburn, among many others. John Agar played Private First Class Peter Conway. He was Dr. Roger Bentley in The Mole People. George Hastings in The Daughter of Dr. Jekyll. A city official in the 76 King Kong. And Police Captain Hathaway in Mr. No Legs. Agar has also appeared with Wayne in Fort Apache and She Wore a Yellow Ribbon. And they reunited 20 years later for The Undefeated, Chisholm, and Big Jake. Forrest Tucker played Private First Class Al Thomas. He was Sergeant O'Rourke on F Troop. He's also Tom Friend in The Abominable Snowman and Alan Brooks in The Crawling Eye. Wally Cassell played Private First Class Benny Ragazzi. He was Private Dundaro in The Story of G.I. Joe, Ben in the original Postman Always Rings Twice, and Cotton Valetti in White Heat. James Brown played Private First Class Charlie Bass. He was Ted Haynes Jr. in Going My Way, and his final credits were as Detective Harry McSween in 39 episodes of Dallas. Richard Webb played Private First Class Handsome Dan Shipley. He was Captain Midnight on Captain Midnight and Sheriff Jones in the Blob sequel, Beware the Blob. Arthur Franz played Corporal Robert Dunn, the narrator. He was also Lieutenant Painter Jr. in The Cane Mutiny. 
Dr. Jim Barker in Flight to Mars, and Tommy Nelson in Abbott and Costello Meet the Invisible Man. Julie Bishop played Mary, she was Joan Allison in The Black Cat, and Laura McBain in Northern Pursuit. Peter Coe played Private First Class George Helenopoulos. He was Turing Chieftain in Tobruk and Lou Murrieta in Vigilante Force. Richard Jekyll played Private First Class Frank Flynn. He was Sheriff Kip McKinney in Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, Sonny Stein in Mako the Jaws of Death, Arthur Scott in Grizzly, and Chuck in Mr. No Legs. We saw him last season as Shepard in Herbie Goes Bananas, and he'll be back as Bill Dudley in All the Marbles later this season. He's also George Fox in Starman, Lieutenant Quirk in 47 episodes of Spencer for Hire, and Ben Edwards in 28 episodes of Baywatch. Jekyll, Wayne, Agar, and Tucker all appeared together again in Chisholm. Martin Milner played Private McHugh. He was Benjamin Rush in the original 13 Ghosts, Todd Stiles in 116 episodes of Route 66, Pete Malloy in 174 Adam 12s, but most importantly, he plays the father of Richard Dean Anderson's MacGyver, but he also showed up on the RoboCop TV series as RoboCop's dad. So he's MacGyver's dad and RoboCop's dad. William Self played Private L.D. Fowler Jr. He was Corporal Barnes in Howard Hawks' The Thing from Another World and Pat's Caddy in Pat and Mike. He also did a lot of TV producing on shows like The Green Hornet, Batman, Peyton Place, and Daniel Boone. David Clark played Wounded Marine, uncredited. He's back much later as Krusty Old Man in Rospo Pallenberger's Cutting Class in 1989. Dickie Jones played Scared Marine. A decade earlier in 1940, he provided the voice of Pinocchio in Disney's film, and he also played the lead in 42 episodes of TV series Buffalo Bill Jr. His final film appearance was as the man with shotgun in A Boy and His Dog. Roger McGee played Sailor. He was Lindstrom in Forbidden Planet. Glenn Vernon was Marine. He's Uncle Angus in So I Married an Axe Murderer. Ted White played Marine. He was Bart in Rio Bravo, and this marks his seventh appearance on the podcast after playing a motorcycle policeman in Oh God Book 2, Frankie in Demonoid, Guard Number 1 in Cutter's Way, Goon Number 1 in Going Ape, The Father of the Lone Ranger in The Legend of the Lone Ranger, and a Roman officer in History of the World Part 1. Later, he plays Jason Voorhees in Friday the 13th, The Final Chapter. I think that's everything for Sands of Iwo Jima. Thanks again to Carlos Moda for their generous contribution to the show. If there's any title you'd like us to review, our top Patreon tier includes a custom review of any pre-1980s title. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd. Or as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing whatever you choose. We leave you now with a trailer for Sands of Iwo Jima. boys who John Wayne as Sergeant Stryker forged into fighting men. Men who said he was as hard-hearted as steel. But one woman knew differently. So long. So long, Sergeant. I'll pray for you. A letter from my wife after 18 months. You know where she is? In England, entertaining troops. Entertaining troops? Why isn't she here entertaining me? I'm a troop guys who laughed at life under the shadow of death. This is their story. A story the world will never forget. 
Well, you can sit here and be tough if you want to, but I'm going out there and get that guy. And the only way you can stop me is to kill me. That's just what I'll do.